So this morning, we will be looking at Exodus 2. So if you have your Bibles and you want to turn to Exodus 2, that is where we will be this morning. I'm going to read the entire chapter, but I'm not going to preach the entire chapter. Interestingly, in the providence of God, Exodus 2 is a really popular story. It's so popular, in fact, that we can find it expressed in the New Testament in two different places. One of those places is in Hebrews 11, the Hall of Faith. And the other place is the very chapter Pastor Keith will be in next week in Acts 7. So forgive me if I don't run to Acts 7 to explain some of this because I don't want to be stepping off in where Pastor Keith might go, but the story is clear enough um, from Exodus 2. So, Exodus chapter 2. Now, a man from the house of Levi went and took a, as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took him from a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank, and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds, and she sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me. And I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. <clears throat> she named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens and saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely this thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, how is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hands of the shepherds 
and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him, that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and she called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. And so ends the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray. Father, we ask now that your spirit might illuminate our hearts and minds. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear, and way we hear only the glories of Christ from your word. Amen. So, if CNN, Fox News, had existed in the days of Moses' birth, the headlines flashing would have been, Hebrews continue in slavery. No end in sight. Hebrew sons to be tossed into the Nile River. God's promises, fact or fiction. In other words, things were pretty bleak for the Hebrews, and they knew it. But even at this moment, the hand of God was at work, and he's planting seeds of a plan that would eventually blossom into the redemption of his people and the fulfillment of his promises. But this plan required a mediator through whom God would bring about his deliverance. God's purpose required a human vessel, and that vessel would be Moses. Moses was about to enter the world at the most impossible time. Being born a Hebrew son at the time when Hebrew sons were sentenced to die in the Nile River. God's plan didn't seem very promising. In fact, it seemed destined for failure. But God, in his providence, ultimately extracts a glorious victory out of the birth of this small child. From the river of death, God brought life and deliverance. You know, Psalm 2 tells us that the kings of the earth shake their fist at heaven. They declare themselves to be gods. But their decrees and plans are consistently relegated to the dung pile by the power of God's hand. When we see the chain of events in this story unfold, the, the ways that God preserved Moses' life, we learn a bit about God's modus operandi. Have you heard that word before? It's a term I use frequently in my law enforcement career. It's simply a fancy Latin phrase for how someone operates. We used it often, uh, but we shortened it to M.O. What's the guy's M.O.? What's his M.O.? What's her M.O.? How do they operate? How, how am I going to go make a case against them? Well, God's M.O. very often, particularly when it comes to his redemptive purpose, we're going to see it, it at work here 
in the preservation of Moses, and that's irony. Simply stated, God loves irony. We see it quite a bit in the Gospels as well. Just consider the things that we're going to see here this morning. Events unfold in this popular story will witness firsthand the God of the impossible as he operates through irony to carry forward his plan. Before we get to the story in Exodus 2, we should have a little recap of what we saw last time in Exodus 1. God's people, the Hebrew people, are enslaved in Egypt. They got to Egypt because there was a famine in the land of Canaan hundreds of years ago. And the sons of Jacob went and found their brother Joseph in Egypt, which was, who was quite successful. Egypt had food. So the entire clan moves to Egypt. And they become very successful. And then that pharaoh dies and there's a new pharaoh. He doesn't know anything about Joseph. He doesn't care about these Hebrews. They're put to work. And they keep growing. They keep multiplying. In spite of everything that Pharaoh throws at them, slavery, hard labor, they continue to multiply. They're growing in number. And the reason they're growing in number is because God's at work. And he's fulfilling his promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 that I will make you a great nation. So here are these people in captivity for hundreds of years, almost 400 years. The promise certainly seemed unobtainable when you're a slave turning mud and straw into bricks to build buildings for the most powerful man in the world, the most wicked man in the world. It hardly seems like you're a child of God at that point. I wonder if we ever feel that way. I wonder if we ever, in our daily struggles, when things aren't going right, do we feel like we're really a child of the king? As we looked at, Gen at Exodus 1, <coughs> I took you all the way back to Genesis. And one of the things we learned in Genesis that we need to remember is that there's a battle going on. There's a battle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And Pharaoh represents the seed of the serpent. He represents Satan in this story. So Adam and Eve are exiled from God's presence. They're exiled from the garden because of their failure. And this Exodus story begins the turning around of returning God's people to God's presence. And we saw in Exodus 1, there's one little mention of God in the whole chapter. And that involves the Hebrew midwives. And yet the people continue to multiply. Like the grains of sand on the seashore. God was doing the impossible even though his people were in bondage. In bondage to the most powerful man on earth. In bondage to the seed of the serpent. God was accomplishing the impossible right under the very nose of Satan, right in his face. 
In Exodus 1, we know that um, Pharaoh's plan, using the midwives to kill the Hebrew babies, failed. But Exodus 1 closes with an edict from Pharaoh to the Egyptians this time. I want you to kill all the male Hebrew babies. Throw them in the Nile River. The daughters can live. The daughters. The daughters can live. Daughters are going to be, become a very important character in Exodus chapter 2. So this is where Exodus 2 picks up. This edict from Pharaoh is in mind. The male Hebrew babies are to be drowned in the river. So Exodus 2 picks up and we see a wedding taking place between two Levites. That's important. And children are born. Let's not rush past that. We know the Levites will become an important people, won't they, in Israel's history. They're not yet, but they will become the priestly line. This is the family that Moses is born into, along with his brother Aaron and his sister Miriam, all important characters within the first five books, um, the second and third book in particular. So the story begins with a wedding. If you remember, this story near the end also has another wedding, doesn't it? And then the, the story ends, the chapter ends, once again, one brief mention of God. And yet God is at work to fulfill his promise. The seed of the serpent is out to destroy the seed of the woman. All the male Hebrew children into the Nile River. Now, we'll learn more about the Nile River in future sermons and how significant it is and was in the Egyptian culture. But for now, it's enough to know that the Nile River represents death to the seed of the woman. Perhaps water representing death might take your mind back to the creation story. Water's covered the face of the earth. Even more striking, God's decreation in the flood. He sent waters as judgment, as death. Water to cover the earth and to destroy every living thing, except Noah and his family. So we see in verse 2, Moses' mother, she hides him for three months, keeps him in the home. God gave Moses a courageous mother. The most powerful man in all the world declares the Hebrew sons must die. When Moses is born, his mother ignores Pharaoh's decree, putting herself at personal risk, as I think most mothers would. Now, we live in a culture where that's not simply true all the time. Most mothers when they see that child, they would want to preserve that child. But there came a time when she couldn't hide him anymore. So the text tells us she gets a a papyrus basket for him and coats it with tar and pitch. She places the child in it and put it 
among the reeds along the banks of the Nile. Are we having a little flashback yet? You should be. The Hebrew word for basket is teva. It's used twice in the Bible. Here in Exodus and in Genesis. Besides basket, the word has two other meanings in the Hebrew language. Vessel and ark. So just like Noah and his family were delivered from death through an ark, Moses, his physical descendants, as well as all of Israel, would ultimately be delivered through this tiny vessel, this tiny ark, just big enough to hold the baby. The God of the impossible is at work behind the scenes as he always is. And he's thwarting the plans of the seed of the serpent. And his reason for that is to fulfill his promises. At first glance, this plan of Moses' mother, it doesn't seem very effective to me. She put the basket in the waters that represent death for the Hebrew sons. The most likely outcome for such a plan is that Moses would die from dehydration, malnutrition, or perhaps he would even drown. It's as if Moses' mother was simply leaving a survival to chance. And it's probably true that his mother didn't know what would happen ultimately when she put him in the water. But she may have known where she placed him along the bank where the Pharaoh's daughter came to bathe. We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us that. Either way, the hand of God is at work preserving the life of Moses. In verse 4, we see there's somebody there on the riverbank. Moses' sister. Miriam, I assume. She's there on the riverbank watching to see what would happen to this baby. Watching over the little ark as it rests in the reeds along the banks of the Nile. And now Pharaoh's daughter is coming. Put yourself in Miriam's shoes. Could it get any worse? The only way it could get worse is if Pharaoh himself came down to the riverbank. But here's his daughter. That's almost as bad. The daughter of the seed of the serpent is coming. And the seed of the woman is hidden in a small ark in the waters of death. Surely she'll find the baby. The baby will cry. The death of another Hebrew son is only moments away. Sure enough, the little ark is discovered. And now the baby is crying. And Pharaoh's daughter recognizes him as a Hebrew child. Should be bad right now, shouldn't it? But the God of the impossible is at work. The God of irony is at work. 
And here, he causes the heart of Pharaoh's daughter to have pity on this child. And if that's not enough to make your head spin and your heart ache to know more of this God, right there is Miriam. Right where the God of the impossible has placed her. So God uses this little slave girl and she runs up to Pharaoh's daughter. Shall I go get a nursemaid for you? This little slave girl runs up to the Pharaoh's daughter. Shall I go get a nursemaid for you? Yes, go. I want to answer a question you might have. I know it's a question I had when I wrestled with this text. Don't shout out the answer if you know it. I want others to wrestle with it. The question is, how did Pharaoh's daughter know that this baby was a Hebrew? Let me ask again. How did Pharaoh's daughter know that this child was a Hebrew? Let's look at the evidence we have in front of us. We have a male child, about three months old. We know that he was born to a Hebrew couple. So what can we surmise from that? Let me ask it in a different way. What happens to male Hebrew children that were born under God's covenant sign, under the promise to Abraham? Circumcision. That's right, they're circumcised. Very likely how Pharaoh's daughter recognized the child was a Hebrew. God's people had been in captivity for 400 years in Egypt. It's probably pretty safe to say that the Egyptians would have been familiar with Hebrew religious customs by the time Moses is born and discovered. To Pharaoh's daughter, the circumcision simply identified the child as a Hebrew. But wait, what was the circumcision for? What did it represent? To the Hebrews. It's a sign. But it's a sign of what? It's a covenant sign. It's the sign that God gave to Abraham. When he made the covenant with Abraham. When God made a promise to Abraham. Abraham struggled to believe that promise. He believed God. But in him and Sarah's condition. Their age condition. Older than anyone in this room. He told them they're going to have a baby. You'd struggle with that too. And God gave him a sign, an ironic sign. And he gave the sign not only to Abraham, but to all of his descendants. And the sign is to be seen as a reminder of God's covenant promise. Abraham needed a reminder. Abraham's descendants needed a reminder that they served the God of the impossible. 
A reminder that God had called him from his father's house to begin something brand new. A reminder that he served the God of creation, the God of decreation and recreation. Abraham needed to be reminded that he served a God who could deliver his people from the hands of the Egyptians. He delivered Abraham from the Egyptians once, didn't he? God gave Abraham the ironic covenant sign of circumcision so that he and his descendants would never, ever forget the promises of God. It's how the God of the impossible, the triune God that we serve, reminds his people of his promises. He gave us signs as well, didn't he? No longer do we circumcise ourselves. The God of the impossible circumcises our sinful hearts. We can't do that. God does it. The God of the impossible gave us baptism into the death of Christ. A baptism that symbolizes our new clean hearts and our own death and resurrection into Christ. How ironic is that? Our sign of a new life is death. It's the God of the impossible. It's how he works. And just like Abraham, sometimes the promises are hard for us to believe. And they're particularly hard to believe when we view those promises through our circumstances. Particularly our bad circumstances. The times when nothing seems to be going our way and God seems to be absent. Imagine what little Miriam thought as she witnessed Pharaoh's daughter finding her baby brother hidden in the reeds. The Pharaoh's daughter, circumcision was nothing more than a religious symbol. To Miriam, it's the sign of God's promise. And she immediately recognizes the pity in the daughter's heart. And she runs to her. Shall I go get you a nurse? The God of irony and the God of the impossible had intervened. And the daughter of the seed of the serpent agrees with the little Hebrew slave. And then as if God hadn't been ironic enough yet, Pharaoh's daughter says in verse 9, she's going to let the child live, but she's also going to pay the nursemaid her wages for raising the child. It's the God of the impossible at work. When the child grew older, verse 10 tells us, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Out of the waters of death. I want you to notice whom God has used in this text. The God of irony. The God of the impossible has used three women. Three daughters, in fact. To thwart the plans of Pharaoh. To thwart the plans of the seed of the serpent. To thwart the plan of Satan. To destroy the seed of the woman. Remember Pharaoh's edict? Destroy the males, the daughters, they can stay. Remember in Exodus 1, God used two women, two Hebrew slaves, two Hebrew slaves who were midwives. God's turning things around. 
God is reversing the curse. No wonder Adam, Adam named his wife correctly when he named her Eve. As her name means the mother of all that is living. Adam was wise. Notice a few things. The Nile River was a place where Israel's hope was to be extinguished. A place where its sons would die. But God brings forth from that graveyard the life of his son and servant Moses, whom he will eventually employ in the redemption of an entire nation. Consider the fact that it was from Pharaoh's house where the edict has gone forth from. But because of the God of the impossible, it's a daughter from Pharaoh's own house who acts to overturn that. In fact, this little boy, one day we will see in the future, not this Pharaoh, but a different Pharaoh, this little boy is going to grow into a man and defeat this Pharaoh. And all of the people will be free from bondage. The irony of the weak defeating the strong. Moses comes into the world as a defenseless baby who's saved by three women compared to Pharaoh who's the most powerful man in the world. But it's these three women who sow the seeds of Pharaoh's destruction. Now Moses is raised with the knowledge of his Hebrew identity because of his mother's presence. And simultaneously, he's being raised in the wisdom and knowledge of Egypt as he's raised in the daughter's household. Moses gets everything. He gets as good an education as somebody could have got at that time. God was working. So what do we take away from this story for our lives? It's always the so what question. What about me? What does it mean to me? And yes, the events in our lives might seem trivial in comparison to a child being placed in a basket in a river, but sometimes they might seem, at least to us, just as terrible. But this pattern of God bringing good things out of desperate situations, it's a pattern that's repeated in the Bible. Not just in the Old Testament. Romans 8.28. Most relevant in our lives when we are most likely to doubt it. It's easy to doubt it. It's easy to say it. God works together all things for good for those who love him. It's easy to say. It's not always easy to believe. And our problem is we don't always see or understand the gentle hand of providence while we're in the middle of trouble. Yet even in our most desperate moments, he's there. The God of the impossible is there. And he's working all things together for good. Now, I, I don't want us to go home today and compare our lives to Moses. 
I don't think anybody here is going to be called to lead a nation uh, out of bondage. Nobody here was born and placed in an ark in the river, I don't think. I hadn't heard that story if you were. But that doesn't mean we're not as equally important to God. Do you know that we were all the Father's possession? Every one of us was a possession of God the Father. And he gave us to his son Christ. He gave him to us. Gave us to him. We are a promise to the son from the Father. Even the hairs on our head, those of us who still have hair, are numbered. And if you had hair at one time, it was numbered. So I don't want to leave you out. The God of the impossible. The Westminster Larger Catechism talks about God's providence. In its answer to the question, what are God's works of providence? It says, God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing all his creatures, ordering them in all their actions to his own glory. Moses is not the only person to experience the God of the impossible's care. You and I experience it. When things are going badly in our life, hopefully we can find some comfort in knowing that God is behind the scenes working. He may not be solving the problem like we think he should. In fact, he's probably not going to. It would be ironic if he did. He's going to solve it the way God solves problems. We can't fail to recognize he's at work. Sometimes we need some distance from our problems before we can recognize that God was, in fact, at work. It's hard to see it when you're in the middle of it. Sometimes it takes a little distance, and usually that distance occurs down the road afterwards. And then we can see it. Then we can see that God was at work. <clears throat> we know the end of the Moses story, but his mother didn't. And when she placed him in the little ark, she had no idea whether or not God would preserve her son. She probably thought she'd never see him again. Like so many aspects of the Christian life, we're called to exercise faith in regard to God's providence and his care. Even when our story doesn't end well and things don't turn out right. Even when we don't get a happy ending to the story, God is still working for our good. He's still displaying his glory. And it requires great faith to trust God when we suffer. But he gives us that faith. And he calls us to exercise it. We have a greater assurance of the truth of Romans 8.28 because we have seen, we can go and look and see how the God of the impossible works. The God of irony orchestrates deliverance from bondage in sin through the one who is greater than Moses. And this story of Moses is a great story. It's a precursor to the story of Christ. There are so many similarities, but there's a lot of differences too. 
Moses is born under a powerful leader, under the threat of death. Christ is born under a powerful leader, under the threat of death. And God works in both of their lives. One of the important differences is in the type of deliverance provided. Moses delivered his people from an evil ruler. Christ delivers his people from the wages of sin, not from an evil ruler. Jesus is the mediator of a newer and better covenant than Moses was. I'm going to wrap this up. We've talked about this battle, this seed, the battle between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. The battle's over. It was won at the cross. We know that. Satan knows it, but I don't think he believes it. Because he continues to fight to this day. He will fight with you before this day's over. Because he doesn't believe it. The question I have for you is do you believe it? Do you believe the battle is won? Father, thank you for this time that in your wisdom you have commanded your people to gather together in your sight. A Sabbath day to enjoy rest, a respite from this cruel and crazy world that we are traveling through. Father, bless us now. Um, We ask that these words might plant themselves in our heart, that we might reflect on them in the coming days. In Christ's name.